0: gracious and loving god thank you for bringing us safely to a brand new week preserve us with your mighty power that we may not fall into sin nor be overcome by adversity or anxiety and in all that we do direct us to the fulfilling of your purpose it's in Jesus' name we pray amen
1: now god did not subject the coming world about which we are speaking to angels But someone has testified somewhere. What are human beings that you are mindful of them, of mortals that you care for them? You have made them for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them, but we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one Father. For this reason, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brothers and sisters. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Here am I and the children whom God has given me. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. For it is clear that he did not come to help angels, but the descendants of Abraham, Therefore, he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being tested.
0: And thus ends the second chapter of this epistle called Hebrews, and it's a really packed letter, there's lots kind of happening here. So I'm going to go through verse by verse some of the main themes and uh, see then what we need to unpack in our conversation. So the beginning of this passage continues with a theme we looked at last week about how God never subjected the world to angels. And in a sense, What the author is doing is just trying to set up how Jesus is superior to everything people in Judaism at the time might have been tempted to elevate above Jesus. So at first it was angels. Uh, Next week it's going to be Moses. Later on it's going to be the sacrificial system with the old priests of Leviticus. But we're still working on angels and the author basically says God never subjected the world to angels. And then he says someone has testified somewhere. For those of you who have taught English or have uh, some sense of citing your sources, you'll know that this is pretty sloppy work. It's Psalm eight, and in Psalm eight, the author writes, "What are human beings that you are mindful of them, or the Son of Man that you care for them?" Uh, the NRSV translates that "mortals," and I want to replace that with the word "Son of Man" because it's central to the argument of the author. And so, what's happening here? Uh, in verses 6 and 7 and 8, is that the author, by quoting the eighth psalm, is doing two things simultaneously. The first thing he is doing is trying to elevate the status of human beings, and to remind human beings of their divine vocation as God's image bearers, to have dominion over the creation. For those of you who are part of the Genesis study, you remember Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, Adam and Eve are given dominion. We talked about how dominion is not domination, but rather it is a wise, faithful stewardship over something God entrusts to us, that Adam and Eve were to be the people through whom God's wisdom and love And intelligence flowed out into the world. That's what it means for the world to be subject to human beings. But also with this reference to the Son of Man, which again, NRSV translates it mortals. But I think that the author was playing off another letter we've studied in this Bible study, or rather another book, and that's the book of Daniel, where the Son of Man is this exalted figure at the right hand of God, also called. The ancient of days. Uh, And so, with this reference to Psalm 8, again, the author does two things. The author reminds us that human beings are precious. We have an important role in God's overall plan, that we're not an oops or an accident, but rather we're just a little bit lower than the angels. These Divine, majestic figures. We're just a little bit lower than them, uh, and that we were given this great vocation to have dominion or stewardship over God's creation. That that was our original design. So we're reminded of that, and we're reminded of this reference to the Son of Man, which uh, is a figure in the Old Testament. Most notably associated with the book of Daniel. So whenever we get to verse eight, the author says, now in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. As it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. What is he saying? He's basically saying we don't see the world as God intended it. Whenever he says we don't yet see everything subject to them, What the author is really doing is stating the obvious, that the world God set up where authority was entrusted to human beings who were were to uh, exercise some authority with wisdom and grace, to be vessels through whom love spread into the world, that it's not actually working out that way, that the world is a chaotic place. So he says, we don't yet see the world subject to human beings. But then he says, but we do see Jesus and that this Jesus tasted death for everyone. Now, I know the argument's kind of hard to understand whenever you read it, but whenever we look at the overall shape of what Hebrews is doing, it's really trying to answer a basic question, which is, who are we? Like, who are we? The book of Hebrews is very concerned with the question of identity. And so um, today, we're going to be told that we're Jesus's brothers and sisters. Next week, we're going to be told that we're partners in a heavenly calling. But at the beginning of this chapter, we're reminded that we're this precious, central uh, part of the story, that God places a human being in the garden and basically says, you have a really big role. You're to be the vessel through whom I love flows into the world, but that rather than love flowing to the creation through our presence, because Adam and Eve disobey, the opposite, death, flows into the creation, okay? So this is the logic of Hebrews. So as death flows into the creation, we then become enslaved by our fear of death. And that's why all this reference to Jesus, who became a little lower than the angels, tasting death for everyone, is at the very center of the solution. The author writes, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, in bringing many children to glory— should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. That word pioneer is a little tricky to translate. It's been translated as author, as chief leader, as prince. But basically the idea is we fell short. It's just a different way of articulating what Paul does in his epistle to the Romans, that all fall short of the glory of God, that we have failed in our assignment that we need help from the outside and that what God needs to send us is not a better set of commandments, but rather a leader, a prince, an author of salvation. And that's kind of what's being articulated. Jesus is said to be that pioneer of our salvation who saves us through suffering. By entering into suffering, that is the mechanism by which we are saved, but not only saved, The word used in verse 11 is sanctified, and that Greek word translated sanctified, it's the same word as to be made holy. But the basic idea here is that God is putting us back together through Jesus and Jesus's sufferings, but not just putting us back together, making us family. And so what does it say? It says that we all have one father and that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother and sister. And so it's not just that we have a savior, it's that we have a family, that we've been made family with each other and that God is now uh, our father in the same way that Jesus can call him father, so can we. And then in verse 14, there's that word, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise share the same things so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death That is the devil and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by fear of death. This then speaks to what Jesus's work is it's to set us free. And and we can test this out in our conversation whether or not this metaphor of of slavery works. You know, for Paul, he also said that we were slaves, but, but Paul said that we were slaves of sin. And the author of Hebrews is still playing with this Exodus imagery of being set free from slavery. But the author of Hebrews would say that what we're enslaved to is fear. And and if you look into those things deeply, they're really just two different ways of articulating the same phenomenon, I think. But the author of Hebrews would say that what we need to be liberated from is our fear. Because what happened when Adam and Eve ate that piece of fruit? They hid. Why? Because they were scared. And so all of a sudden, this relationship that was meant to be characterized by intimacy and tenderness and vulnerability between God and the human beings shifts. And all of a sudden, human beings are scared and they're hiding from God. And so all that imagery is in the background. And the author of Hebrews says, God wants to liberate you from that. God does not want you to be scared. In fact, next week, I think we'll have that great verse where it says, Let us approach with boldness the throne of grace. That idea of boldly stepping into God's presence is really the image of what it means to be free for the author of Hebrews, to be bold and free in terms of our relationship with God. The rest of the chapter is all just saying that in different ways about how Jesus became like his brothers and sisters in every respect so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. That word merciful is really important for the book of Hebrews. That's what Jesus does. Jesus showers us with mercy. Jesus is empathetic. Jesus understands our weakness and meets us there. One thing I like to remind people of is that this letter was written to people who felt really beat up. This was not a rallying cry for the super strong spiritual Christians, but whoever this letter was first addressed to, they were at the end of their rope. They were scared. They were terrified by death. They were struggling to kind of hold the church together. And so the author is really trying to encourage people by saying, Jesus knows. Jesus knows your weakness. He knows your suffering. He has tasted the same death that you fear. He's become like you in every respect. There is no part of your experience that Jesus can't empathize with. And so what does that mean? It means he's able to help. Verse 18, because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he's able to help those who are being tested. And we don't really talk about Jesus as a helper very often. We talk about Jesus as a savior. But this idea of Jesus helping is an important biblical motif. We have the same imagery in the Gospel of John with the image of the Holy Spirit as the paraclete or the helper, the counselor. And so a question that Hebrews would have us ask is, where exactly do we need help? Do we believe that Jesus can help us? Do we ask Jesus for help? And so I'm going to turn it uh, over to you here in a bit, but some questions I think just or really some questions just to get you thinking, because I think these are the questions chapter two raises. The first is what do we see? We do not yet see the world subject to human beings, but we do see Jesus. Basically, what that verse means is we don't yet see a world where justice, beauty, and grace are always present, but we do see Jesus. And I think the reason this verse is in this epistle is because the author wants his community to look where hope is found. And hope is not found in the headlines. Hope is not found in looking at whether or not society is improving. Hope for the author of Hebrews is found in seeing Jesus. And so one question we can ask is, how do we see Jesus? Again, I referenced the gospel of John, but there's that great verse where Jesus and his friends are at the festival and all the Greeks come up to Philip and they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. What does it mean to see Jesus in today's world? And then the other big question, I think that this chapter raises is what does it mean for you to be set free from fear? This idea of being liberated from fear is a big theme of chapter two. And so, what would that mean for your life? What would it mean for our church? Where do you see yourself and the people you love still enslaved by fear? Because one thing that the author of Hebrews wants to take off of us is the experience of fear. He wants us to loosen up a little bit and to feel some confidence in Jesus as our priest and Jesus as our helper.